Hey gang, I had a conversation with Daniel Bessner, who is a professor at the University of Washington, about his recent cover story in Harper's Magazine about the end of the American century, although we discussed a lot of other stuff as well. If you want to help Culturally Determined succeed, one way to do so is to leave a five-star rating and or a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this show. Thanks. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Daniel Bessner. Daniel, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm uh, Daniel Bessner. I am the co-host of the American Prestige podcast. Uh, thanks for coming back on the show. I think you're officially a friend, friend of the pod at this point. Um, yeah, I've been on a bunch. Yeah, I, I, I think six times. I, I, did, I did a little count before we got on. So, so this is lucky, nice. lucky number seven. And um, so thank you for coming back on. And we're going to be talking about your cover story, uh, an essay in last month's Harper's, the July issue, which people can probably still find on the newsstands if they want the print or it's online as well. The headline on the cover is The American Century is Over, What's Next? And Empire Burlesque is the title for the essay itself. Uh, well, congratulations on a cover article in Harper's. That's that's a big deal. Um, how, how did this piece come together uh, and why did you want to write it? Well, a friend of mine um, put me in contact with um, the editor of Harper's because he writes for Harper's relatively uh, regularly. And I basically pitched them a piece uh, that would be kind of my version of, of, of a George Kennan, like big strategic, grand strategic thinking piece in the, from the perspective of 2022. Uh, and so I, I pitched the piece as kind of reading where DC is on the US-China relationship, because I think that's the big thing that people there are focused on. So I read a bunch of um, reports from a variety of think tanks, um, the major think tanks in DC, um, and also uh, some newer ones, and, and framed this debate, uh, debates rather, between uh, so-called liberal internationalists and restrainers. And then I wrote the piece, and the rest is history. <laughs> so... You're doing George Kennan, so this is like, you know, Article X, whatever that thing was called, uh, Communicate 47. What was that thing called that you wrote that was the uh, very influential? So there's the the long telegram of February 46, which is the the his actual report from the um, uh, from within the government. And then he does sort of a more popular uh, streamlined version in foreign affairs under the, uh, the, the name X. Okay, but, so that's... Uh, so that's dramatic. This is the, so yours is a little less dramatic because you're not a government employee. You are a uh, professor, podcaster, public intellectual. Okay, so your piece is very much a counter narrative to the prevailing foreign policy narrative. What do you think? Sort of the the mainstream or or the blob, as some people call it, uh, the foreign policy blob. What do you think uh, they're wrong about? Well, I mean, they basically just want the United States to rule the world now and forever. Um, and I think that has a bunch of issues with it. Uh, I think it has philosophical issues. You know, the premise is wrong. Um, I think it has empirical issues that the United States can't really uh, do what it wants to do. Uh, and I think it has normative issues in, in suggesting what type of foreign policy the United States should pursue. But basically to make it in in this uh, meritocracy, quote unquote, that we have, you've in, in DC in particular, um, you've got to basically believe the United States should govern the world now and forever. And that's still the de facto position of, of people in this world. Okay, so the, the piece is about American hegemony 
and the decline of American hegemony and what, yeah, whether that is, uh, I guess, inevitable, something to be mourned, something that we have to we're, we're, we have to deal with either way. And so I guess the average like D.C. foreign policy think tank person thinks that it's a good thing that America has been the global hegemon since 1945. Um, do you disagree with that? Sorry, do I disagree with that it has been a good thing or that they agree with that? Position? Well, either, either one. I, 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 more, I meant more, do you disagree that um, it's a good thing? But is, is, am I wrong yeah, in thinking? Yeah, it's not a good thing. Am I wrong yeah. in thinking that that's the average? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, that is the average. I mean, because most people who go into this come from a particular class, you know, the people who have succeeded in the system. Uh, so they think the system is good. What shock. Uh, but yeah, I think that's wrong. Okay, well, so what's the counter narrative? Uh, that the United States has done an enormous amount of damage to the world, and I, I, I go through that. You know, the the various coups um, in the global south. Uh, I would say ha basically helping global capitalism become hegemonic, and particularly a consumer centered capitalism that relies on constantly consuming the world's raw materials wasn't an especially good thing for the earth, or you know, to say nothing of of the shattering of communal bonds. And things that this neoliberal consumer figure, you know, uh, contributes to. And I would say, broadly speaking, to put it at its most general level, it might have been good for Western and Central Europe and, you know, ending ending wars. So you don't get another world war uh, in, on the continent of Europe and you're able to consume quite a bit if you're under the American nuclear umbrella there. But, you know, for most of the global south, the American century, quote unquote, was pretty shitty. Um, so that's my basic take on that whole on that whole issue. Okay, so the term American century was either the coined or at least popularized by Henry Luce, who was the founder of Time and Life magazines. Is, is that right? Yeah, I, I, he was like a, a major publisher. I don't know. I don't know if he was the literal founder. I, okay. sure, he, he published them, though, for sure. <laughs> okay, he, yeah, I think he was the, I think he, well, at least Time, I think he was the founder. And, and he had, he had a story in 1941, coining this term the American century, and basically arguing that the absence of American leadership after the disasters of World War One, like set things up for what was happening in Europe right then. And he was urging America to take a leadership role on the global stage. And this is, you know, and Pearl Harbor happened 10 months later and America entered the war. So, well, he, he was prescient, I guess, in, in some ways. Um, were there still people in, 1941 thinking american could, could just stay out of this thing and it would sure yeah it, it would it would end in, in some way or another america was already effectively doing quite a bit for the war in terms of lend lease and things mm -hmm. like that but yeah no there there absolutely were i mean really until world war ii one of the strongest traditions in u.s foreign policy was stay out of europe um so that was still you know it doesn't disappear overnight the U.S. establishment, I think, makes the choice for global hegemony in the summer of 1940 after the fall of France. Um, Stephen Wartime wrote about that in his book, Tomorrow the World. But no, absolutely, there are still people who want the United States to remain aloof from uh, especially European affairs. I mean, the isolationist is not a correct term because basically every, everyone thought the U.S. should dominate the Western Hemisphere. So unless you totally get rid of the Western Hemisphere, there's no such thing as isolation. It really related to how far and how deep the U.S. should go into Europe and East Asia. Mm -hmm. So yeah, don't use isolationist. It's not a real word. It's not. It doesn't describe a real philosophy. Okay, you mean even the 
the people who America Furters we, we call today isolationists from the 1930s still wanted America to be the hegemon in South and Central America. Yeah, unless unless you think that those areas of the world don't count, <laughs> there there were no isolationists. Okay, so Charles Lindbergh was not shedding tears for whatever was happening in Haiti and Cuba and the Dominican Republic. Uh, I don't know the thought of Charles Lindbergh, and, Lindbergh enough, but in general, people who adopted like don't get involved in World War II um, were quite fine with U.S. domination and dollar diplomacy and things like that in Central and South America. Okay, and, and I mean Caribbean. this, you know, the this goes back to the Monroe Doctrine, which was like 1820 or something, right? That America would was claiming hegemony over over the hemisphere. Um, yeah, yeah, the Monroe Doctrine, and uh, I think it's announced formally in 1823. But yeah, it's a longstanding tradition. Yeah. Um, and you know, and to this day, um, we we assume that we're the <laughs> the U.S. is the yeah, is the hegemon sure. uh, in our hemisphere. Okay, so is there a counterfactual where, and I'm sure there are like not you know alternate history novels written about this, where Germany does not declare war on the United States days after Pearl Harbor, and America just fights some sort of battle against Japan, and comes <laughs> comes like a separate piece with. Uh, with Europe, what you know was was it was this? I mean, that was a consideration, but pretty early on, uh, in by forty forty one, most people in the establishment think that's not really possible. Um, that Germany is going to have expansionist ambitions, but more, even more than that, like it represented the triumph of, of fascism, and so that was like a real uh, a real challenge to what Americans envisioned themselves as doing. So it was two like actually different ideologies. You know, like like a real uh, a real fascism tied to a real state that was uh, seemingly quite powerful and was quite powerful. So at the end of World War II, America is the great power left standing. And um, and well, let me let me read two quotes from your piece. Um, you write. So, you're, you know, there's this idea that, you know, the Cold War, you know, wasn't that bad for America because. You know, there weren't that many direct there weren't any direct conflicts the proxy wars were compared to the other wars of the 20th century not so bad so you so you're right um well not so bad for americans pretty brutal for everyone else yeah so you're right cold war was hardly the quote long piece that many liberal internationalists valorize it was rather incredibly violent the historian paul thomas chamberlain estimates that at least 20 million people died in the in cold war conflicts the equivalent of 1200 deaths a day for 45 years i think you've, you've mentioned this in other podcasts i've Heard you where you talk about the Cold War with someone saying, well, you know, don't, isn't it good that America won the Cold War? You know, that there's this, yeah, toll that the average American doesn't think about because it, did, it didn't happen here. So, and it was so mostly, who cares about mostly developing humans? world countries. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was proxy wars. Um, okay. But at the same time, you know, there was no, there wasn't great power conflict during. Well, I mean, th then this gets into the consumer capitalism thing, which I think is just like, barred on horrible for humanity i think it's spiritually bad i think it's environmentally bad and that's what really the united states gave to the world you mean like yeah by... consuming like think about how much we consume like yes. literally just destroying the earth through raw material consumption and the purchasing of consumer products that make us all sad <laughs> oh what is the connection you see to our that was totally dependent on american empire yeah, I mean, this is totally American empire. Think about a city like L.A., which is a city based on what? Driving. What is that based on? Having access to rubber and oil. 
you know, things like that. These things are inextricably connected to say nothing of the military Keynesianism that defines so much of the post-war political economy, that the only way we get social democratic benefits in this country is through military spending. It just perverted everything. Like it just like it made everything that could have been good. Instead of using technology for human ends, we used it for militarist bad ends. Right. And, you know, maybe this is what military Keynesianism means, but America has a spends more on military, you know, everything than than most of the rest of the world combined. Discretionary spending. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like our version of a command economy and social safety debt is and an industrial policy because, you know, we make our own tanks and bombs and stuff. Um, It's just like (laughs) in in other Western countries, these things are not directed primarily through the military, but America has like its own version of, the NHS, which is healthcare for vet- for service members and veterans, and yeah, an industrial policy <laughs> for building fighter jets and tanks and stuff. So that's you know that was a choice that was made. I don't know if I mean what what is the what's the alternate path to a general consumer consumerist society that, from my perspective, I mean, that seems hard to avoid. Why 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 do you think it's overdetermined? Uh, let me throw the question back to you. People can make different choices about what they do in the world. You don't have to let the fetishistic consumer objects control you. You don't have to make the, what but, it but means there's so to be much, an American but there's to be so much fun stuff. Like, who, uh, like, are they? Well, who's let? <laughs> I mean, who's letting? So, so the a different government would have prevented all these fun little electronic toys we have from ever being developed or sold. So these are like too dangerous for. I mean, there for, for you to have. There was an ideology of modernization that that this this meant progress, and that was inextricably tied to the idea of the American Empire. And I don't think that that necessarily had to be the case. Uh, it's what occurred historically, um, but I don't think that consumer capitalism was you know the end point of humanity or the end point of of even uh, American capitalism. You know, if you don't get perhaps the the red scare um, and the lavender scares of the late forties and early fifties, maybe you have an actual not demolished left wing in this country that could propose alternative ways of living as opposed to just buying things and then feeling pretty shitty about yourself at the end of it. I think. Well, this sounds like sort of like the the new left argument about like the emptiness of modern life. It like. That young I mean, people the new were left realizing in the sixties. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how how heavy of a new left argument that really was. I'm pretty skeptical of the new left, but they they and, and they they brought in pretty quickly to consumer capitalism, right? Because it is very appealing. But you know, I don't know if it's materially determined exactly. But um, what uh, countries do you look at as a model for what American hegemony what country was could American could have head. provided? as an alternate, you know, lifestyle right now. I mean, like, just because something hasn't existed yet in history doesn't mean that it wasn't possible. There's also been no country that's been nearly as powerful as the United States in history. I Questions like that I always find kind of silly. It's like it, it's like the classic liberal response. It's like, I want the 40-step plan to how we get to where you are. Or I want the exact example in history, which underlying that is a theory of human nature, which I think is silly, which is that human beings are necessarily going to do things like consume and i mean i just don't think human nature is that knowable and it's so profoundly shaped by culture that you could have a multiplicity of different alternatives but there were like different ideologies in various spaces over the course of the 19th and early 20th century there were experiments and things like this in places like cuba and other socialist countries that didn't work out partially because of their own internal problems partially because of the american empire 
But I mean, it just doesn't seem like this is inevitable. I mean, because nothing's really inevitable. That's just not how history works. It's contingent. And there are human agents who shape what's going on. Okay, well, I agree with you about contingency. But at the same time, you know, as you know, I'm a disciple of using that term with somewhat of a um, uh, a joking tone of Robert Wright, author of The Moral Animal, which is about what, you know, arguing there is human a human nature because of uh, the evolution of yeah, of, I mean, I think humans. I, so you you reject that sort of uh, thinking? Do I reject evolutionary psychology? Do I think men cheat because of uh, something in the primitive environment thirty thousand years ago? Um, well, why do you think basically men cheat? the arguments? Um, well, I would say this. I would say clearly, human beings have some material aspects, and like clearly that there there's been a material effect on human action. But I would just say like culture is so much more important. Uh, than any material things that human beings have that, that I, yeah, I guess I fundamentally reject the principle that you could make a claim that men cheat because of, you know, evolution of the mind. And, and I also think like, I also what's, think what's like, the ult- so the, what ultimate reason men culture. cheat would be that they're, you know, like it, um, they're being tempted well, by women cheat the, the, too. Wicked, I mean, the wickedness inherent in sinful these are also, humans. That's, they're, that's they're one are... possible belief. I, I don't agree with that one. Um, you should, you well, should talk to say, Bob because I'm parroting his. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to talk to Bob. I mean, I would just say, look, <laughs> his, at, look at all here. the, look at all the psychological studies. I but mean, any, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm very skeptical incorrect. of of any attempts to create a new man kind of thing. They've, well, you know, sure, as a historian, you're saying history. The, the current existing models are, are not every possible model. Um, but the, the ones we've had so far haven't, you know, mostly turned to disaster or are just, what are you, what are you referring away. to? You know, new Soviet man, new um, national socialist man, like sure. like people are sort of always <laughs> act the same. That's the reason, like we still read Shakespeare. Why do you and, think and the recognize... Soviet Union failed? Why do you think the Soviet Union failed? I, I mean, mean there, I think there were a lot. You have to go through the history, but so let's. It's nineteen twenty. Russia, Russia's a really Lenin fucked up dies. country that keeps on making poor decisions. Uh, uh over the over the twentieth century and twenty first would be unlike unlike the reason. United States. <laughs> well, we're you know I mean, we we've made plenty, but the system hasn't collapsed hasn't collapsed yet although it's it's teetering yeah but you know the idea that um the internal contradictions of of communism uh of soviet communisms were stronger than the internal contradictions of capitalism such that one empire collapsed and one empire became the hegemon right uh, sure. I mean, I think the United States was starting at just like a different, different level of development, different level of capacity. wasn't destroyed by World War II at all. Um, I think there are a lot of contingencies in in there. To say nothing about like Stalin and what Stalin did, and people along uh, along those lines. But but yeah, I mean, sure, there hasn't been a utopian society. I mean, but I don't know that that sort of claim is always like. Then you could say liberal constitutional capitalism has failed. Look at Roe v. Wade and mass incarceration and immiseration in this country and inequality. I would say there's we've never reached that from any political system. Um. Well, this is a tragic view of of human history, possibly. Although I guess you're you're holding out hope for a different system. But okay, we're sort of we sort of. Ended up in a cul-de-sac here, but but what you know? I mean, just one thing: not to excuse the many crimes of the socialist world or the Soviet Union, um, but it's just that uh, to me that doesn't indicate that we shouldn't, you know, try elements of socialism. It's just like it, it's a it's a non sequitur. Well, okay, uh, my general view on utopian utopian people, utopian thinking, is that these are dangerous people. You know, envisioning a so who's just... not dangerous. <laughs> well, let Cass me just. Sunstein. 
well, he wants to nudge people. Um, certainly Which nudging, nud nudging be could be, you know, there are things worse than nudging. But it's just, it's just, did you see that study that just came out that just showed it was total nonsense? Liberals are utopians too, is my point. I don't, Real I, don't utopians. I don't think they are. I mean, the market's a utopian uh, creation, absolutely. Well, liberals maybe, even maybe say a this. you know a libertarian purist would think that the the market. No, liberals in the nineteenth century a, say that. That's their utopia. The market's their utopia. That that's the, the the hand decider. It's God. Literally, it's the God. It's as utopian as as socialism. Certainly, certainly. Oh, I I, I disagree with that. Um, but we're, but you you're. Yeah, as you were a, raised in the system. Of as course a historian you do. of of, uh, of American policy, I guess I'll you're going to win that debate. But um, the idea that um, the perfect society is just over the next hill, and there's certain things we have to do right now to get there. And if you think that it's a utopia of eternal bliss and greatness, then you'll do anything to get there. And those things include, you know, liquidating the kulaks and, var and various other. And, you know, killing a bunch of people. Um, Genociding the Native Americans. Yeah, I don't think we... Well, you could say that the colonists saw I wouldn't America excuse as, as, a, that as, a one, new, as a new Jerusalem. I would accept that one. <laughs> slavery, chattel slavery. Okay. Um, the, the excerpt I read before about 20 million people being killed in Cold War conflicts, 1,200 a day. A couple sentences later, sentences later, when you're talking about America, the undisputed hegemon after 1945, you say its closest competitor was a crippled Soviet Union struggling to recover from the loss of more than 20 million citizens and the devastation of significant amounts of its territory. So can we at least say that the Cold War period with America sort of as a hegemon, um, fewer people died because 20 million died in six years in one country. Well, then the question is, why is it necessary to have American hegemony for that? Was there going to be another World War Three on the European continent unless the America put tons of bases in Western uh, Germany? I don't think so. I think we actually know that per now. Well, it's, it's possible to say archives. that, you know, it was just nuclear bombs. The existence of nuclear bombs and mutually assured destruction that prevented another world war. Is that or the fact that the Soviet Union didn't have the fantasy of dominating the world, which as its archives show. OK, this is an argument I've heard, heard you make fantasy. before. Um, and. You've made it more thoroughly in conversations with Glenn Lowry that I've listened to. And I mean, it's an interesting one. It seemed like both, you know, both the American ideology and the communist ideology had totalizing like universalist. Yeah, I don't think that's claims. right. I don't think I, 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 I don't think that is right. Broadly speaking, I guess. But I think in practice, the Americans took it way further than the Soviets, just like they're taking it way further than uh, the Chinese government today. Well, I mean. Both countries support both countries had global ambitions in that they were supporting various groups and supporting totally or different. not supporting governments around the world. Scale's different. In terms of what the what America Americans did versus did what the more. Soviets did? Yeah. And and and, and, and well we and well we won regions so, of the world. So what so one no, but even one in the leads 50s to the other sixties. Like that, you know, they were much more constrained than we were in terms of resources. And yeah. um people were generally exactly. fleeing from you know, from their Towards the West, though, for some someone in the other direction. Um, but but my point about, okay, 20 million people died in the Soviet Union <laughs> during World War II, 80 million or so killed during those six years. And then you have 1945 to 1989, 20 million total, of course, horrible. And, you know, more people that have ever been killed in wars in American history, I assume. Um, but still better than, better than 
second sure, you know, World War III. Comparison. The comparison isn't to, to World War One and World War Two. It's do you need to get uh, – did you need the benefits of the post-1945 period? Is that dependent upon the American empire? I don't see how. Okay. That's the claim. It's not like this is better than something horrible. It's the counterfactual of how is this dep- – um, did you need the American empire for it? I don't. I don't see how. Well, I guess there's no way, you know, how, how do historians argue counterfactuals? There's uh, we, we can only run this thing once. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a very careful, logical reasoning about about what are the benefits of the uh, action, what are what are not the benefits. But I mean, I just don't see just from a, even a common sense perspective. Why did you need the United States going around the world toppling socialist governments? Um, It seems like largely a waste of time, effort money and human lives given that the soviet union collapsed without a direct war so because their system sort of was messed up and didn't really work or was weaker than the capitalist system you know these things would have collapsed under their own weight more or less just a question do you think the american system works i mean it works better than the soviet system i would so the criterion is not collapsing well, if we're looking at empires over time, they all eventually rise and fall. Um, you're arguing that ours has ended. The, the American empire has ended, whether we oh, people our elected representatives realize it or not. Yeah, it, something's changed. Um, whether it's ended or not, I don't know. The, the American century is not the American is not equivalent to the American empire. The American century is like. The larger ideological project and and what Americans believed in and their capacity to change the world, all that stuff. Okay, so there's two, a word and then a two-word phrase that are not mentioned in your essay. The word is the Holocaust and the two-word phrase is United Nations. Um, Why are those, why is neither those those things mentioned in your essay? Why should they be mentioned? Make the argument why they should be mentioned. (laughs) Okay, Holocaust, you know, the liberal internationalist uh effort is in some ways spurred by the uh never again ethos and that's not true and that's maybe you maybe you think accurate. that is pure boulder dash that no, that's not true it means it's not true if you go um, back to the documents that's just not accurate well i mean, I mean in 1947 people didn't care a lot about the holocaust but exactly <laughs> pre- but preventing another world war in which there might be a holocaust was no, it was preventing another world war. It was, it was not very little to do. Well, as, I mean, as you've discussed, lots of historians in the, 19, in the 1990s, this. pop culture became obsessed with the Holocaust and World War II. Yes, in the 1990s, it's true. So well, Americans 1989 to 2016 or something is, you know, the unipolar moment in which we were on top and, and fucked up in a lot of ways. But what about United Nations? <laughs> so there is a... Global you mean body. the Security Council determines everything and it was created absolutely no question to be the velvet glove over the iron fist of American hegemony? <laughs> I mean, this is just the argument. Okay, so you, so I mean, this is just the facts. I mean, it's not even so an it's argument. So, it's just, you know, as I say said, this, I'm, I'm a disciple, literally. Of, <laughs> disciple of Robert Wright. He's a big fan of international law. And, you know, he's... See he how did, that worked out. <laughs> so his argument against the Iraq war was both that it was misguided and a disaster, but that it violated... The Security Council, you know, it was illegal under international law. So you do not see international law as a future, some sort of hegemonic future system. Certainly not. um, I don't think there. I I don't think you're going to have an effective international law with American hegemon. 
I, you know, but you're I, saying I, the American, like America the is no longer the hegemon. So, so how can the, so no, no, what, no, what I, sort I, of system replaces I, that? I said America. No, I didn't say America. America is the hegemon, and the American century being over, it doesn't mean America isn't the hegemon anymore. America is still clearly more powerful than everyone on Earth, and it doesn't actually require that many people to run the, the world. You know, with new technologies like drones and plus the longstanding nuclear issue. Nuclear weapons issues. No, so America's still the hedge month, even if the American century itself is over. That okay. sort of pure domination is over. Well, so what role do you see the United Nations or international law playing in the future? Obviously, America doesn't respect it, right. nor power does Russia. Matter. Yeah, yeah, power matters more. I mean, in, in, in peripheral cases on the margins, I'm sure it, it will have good effects. But uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately in IR at this moment, uh, power matters more. That's what I think. Okay, as you, I assume as you were writing this, or at least conceiving this article, Russia invaded Ukraine. Did that, did that change the article at all, or change how you think about this? No, I pitched it afterward. I, I don't think that's a big moment in, in structural geopolitics. I mean, I think it's terrible what Putin has done, um, and everything uh, uh, say around that. I mean, it's 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 brutal and it's horrible, and he he did it for a diversity of reasons, um, all of which are are not things that I support. But it doesn't augur any huge structural shift in international relations. Uh, talk more about that. Uh, I mean, in in what way? What's I, well? I, I've said it all. Putin invading a neighbor well, is, it seems, is just you know, not the, it's, restructuring so the global is, this power. Is, this is a sideshow of, you know. I mean, it's not a sideshow for the people in Ukraine, but I don't think that it's um, uh, that it's going to change the. Well, doesn't I mean? Doesn't it show how that Russia, which we, which we considered like a declining great power, was more like a middle power or something because it couldn't assert its will over a much smaller and weaker neighbor. I mean, to be decided with that, um, I, I think we'll see about that. But I mean, I think I think Russia is still a declining power. Um, and I think still the main theater of IR will be U.S. China. I don't I don't see how Ukraine changes that. Basically, it's horrible. And, and there's brutal crimes being. Committed Do you there. think it? OK, evading another country is something that leaders America seem to enjoy doing, doing a lot. Um, <laughs> and it almost never works. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine seems to be another instance of that where a leader decides it'll be a good idea if I invade another country and it's not a good idea. Does that make China think any differently about about anything? Does it make America think any differently about I, anything? I don't think China was on the verge of invading other countries. Uh, I think China likes having an unstable periphery, which provides a logic for its domestic military industrial complex. Um, but I don't think China was going to like invade South Korea or Japan, or the Philippines, um, or Australia, uh, or Indonesia. Um, and I think in, in the United States, there's not really taste for invasion post-Iraq and Afghanistan right now. So how is power being thrown around? Uh, what do you mean? You know, invasion and occupation. Oh, right now. Do, do, oh, so well, it's Or in the, in the foreseeable future. In you know, invasion and occupation, has a bad, there's a bad taste about it. Uh, given the the events of the past 20 years. Well, China might do something with Taiwan. I mean, I don't think that's off the table. Um, and uh, I don't think that the United States is going to fight World War III over Taiwan. Uh, so my, my worry is that American policymakers will not do anything. Um, and then there'll be some dramatic move made by China. Uh, and then instead of doing what they should have done in fostering a years long security transition so that American allies and, and, and friends in the region would be able to defend themselves or, or would be able to, um, you know, 
work international relations to their to their liking, America will just more likely, I think, cut and run because people are unable to give up the fantasy of American domination of East Asia, which I think is is, is impossible. It doesn't mean America is not the hegemon if they can't dominate every region of the world at all moments, but I don't see how, how uh, the fantasy of domination in East Asia will ever be achieved. I think that's that's a chimera. What What is your greatest fear about this period we're entering into where the, the, the facts are shifting? What are you most worried about? Americans not realizing that the world has changed and clinging on to their fantasy of hegemony, which will spur more wars, that will continue to spur defense spending, uh, and that we will continue to consume an incredible amount uh, and continue to destroy the environment. Um, so those are my biggest fears. Um, also, climate is going to engender a lot of population movements that are going to result in terrible uh, loss of life and deracination. I would like for the United States to embrace a wide refugee policy. I don't see that happening. So I, I, I think that the fantasy of American empire is going to um, continue. So do you think that America will be... Will want to launch a war for Taiwan or something, and that will be a, a total disaster for everyone? Or do you it's think tough that's... to know. It's, it's tough to know, but I, I definitely think that, that China has made clear that it considers Taiwan part of its territory. And as they get stronger and stronger, um, it seems, if not inevitable, uh, a real possibility that something like that will happen. And I don't think that we should exchange nuclear weapons over that. <laughs> I would agree with that. I mean, you know, if you look at how... China has like dealt with Hong Kong over the past couple of years and that there, there hasn't, I mean, it's coincided with the pandemic. So people were occupied otherwise, but like they've, they've done it and there hasn't, you know, we're not boycotting. No one seems to really care that much about Hong Kong. Um, so then right. you, war, you wonder how much people will care about Taiwan. Right. A cross strait invasion is different, but yeah, I mean, I just don't, I, I think, I don't think Americans are going to fight a world war three over it. You know, and if that's the reality, then our policy should be different. Can you talk about the restrainer school of thought or movement or however you would characterize it? And sure. I mean, that, broadly speaking. Yeah. What that school would advise us to pay attention to. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the the movement really grew out of the idea, um, and there was broad agreement across across the political spectrum that the United States should really not be as involved in the Middle East as, as it has been. The, the American interests in that region just aren't enough to be as involved as the, the country has been. Um, but when it comes to China, I think there's a lot of disagreements within the community, with people on the left being generally skeptical about, quote-unquote, confronting China, uh, realists being uh, more serious or, or more interested, not more serious, more interested in confronting China and remaining dominant in um, in East Asia. Um, and then you have, you know, people on the right, libertarians um, falling in different camps at different moments. And then there's disagreements about global political economy, you know, with socialists being less into uh, a deregulated political economy and libertarians being more into it. So I think there are significant divisions within the restrainer group. Okay, as a lay person with no expertise in anything, it seems to me that China is not does not have global ambitions, does not have ideological ambitions, really. It seems like they want to grow more powerful, make make money, region, yeah. bring yeah. you know, bring the I mean they've basically done this, bring, you know, the peasantry like into a modern economy. And like I guess there's something called like Xi Jinping thought or something that he's trying to promulgate, but people in 
like universities in other countries are not reading his thought. Like there's, it doesn't seem like there's an, an animating idea in the way that the struggles of the 19th century involved ideas. How, yeah. How, I, does, I, that, how does that strike you? Yeah, I, I, I broadly agree. And I wrote that in, in the article. Okay. We, we had to take a brief break, but we're back at it. Let me ask you Better about than ever. <laughs> yeah. Rev- revivified. Um, do you see the, you know, 25 or 50 years from now is they're going to be more like a 19th century sort of spheres of influence balance no, that's of power. not possible anymore really um the just the the economies are well it, it given the current outlook it's not possible there could be catastrophe um climate a meteor could hit a, a, a truly you know uh black death-esque pandemic could happen and, and then all bets are off but you know, given current protections, I think it's very difficult to see a return to the 19th century balance of power politics. Nuclear weapons really do change things. They they make risks of miscalculation, world ending, and also just the economies are just capitalism is truly global now. It has touched everywhere on Earth, uh, and it's just not possible really to put that genie back in the bottle, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that um, it's very difficult to imagine a return to the 19th century. Okay, and, and you're not optimistic about international law or the United Nations assuming more of a role as not with American hegemony. I mean, I think partic- the UN particularly is so tainted at this point that it would have to be a new institution um, that that could you know do the good things of the UN without being tainted by association with it. Um, but I mean, international law—it's always a possibility. Um, I think you'd have to see great powers give up real elements of their sovereignty which hasn't happened as unlikely to happen, but it, it's not impossible. Yeah. I, I am not optimistic about that happening in the, in, I, I, in the near future. No, <laughs> but you never know. How did, okay. Different question. How did the pandemic, did the pandemic change your view of interna- international relations at all? Were the things about how countries reacted to the pandemic that surprised you? Uh, not really. I mean, America was terrible with it. Um, not unpredictable given the hollowing out of the states by the liberals you love so much aria um <laughs> uh, let's no. let's not throw any accusations <laughs> like that around well you know uh if you well I mean, was it unpredictable or not there was 80s fam- and 90s what are you gonna do famously there was like some organization i don't think it was the who but something raided all the countries in like 2019 on capability of dealing with the pandemic and they rated america as having the best capability so what a shock so that was (laughs) that did not happen i mean something that it the pandemic was an external threat but you know passed biologically from person to person um but it wasn't personalized in the way that most conventional threats are so it's somewhat akin to climate change and that there's not a person you can get angry at or try to kill or capture or something to end this. And it's disappointing that something that seemingly threatened every person and nation on earth led to further division and blaming various groups. It's sort of, it's sort of like the, the thing from Watchmen, the comic book about the uh, alien invasion would unite the various countries and nations on earth to fight against the aliens. We had something sort of like that. And it, it didn't unite the countries on earth. Like people are more divided than they were before. 
was I being yeah, a I mean, in an era or? of nation states, that's, I guess, not uh, particularly in an era of nation states when you're not facing like a literal alien that would kill you in a minute. It's not especially surprising what happened. But yeah, I guess it's not that surprising. It, it just seems like there's something in, well, you, you reject the idea of, of innate human psychology or nature, but it's harder to mobilize people against something abstract than against another person or group. And sure, the, the virus speaking, is not as abstract sure. as climate change, which is like a complicated process. The virus is these you know, microscopic things. But yeah, you know, we, we really yeah, but- fucked it up. It, it affects um, the old and the indigent, indigent the most, which are the people who are not on Twitter um, or in power, even though we have a gerontocracy. Well, that is what but, I uh, mean. Something that was somewhat surprising is, yeah, we do have a gerontocracy. You know, the Speaker of the House is 80. The president is 77 or whatever. And, you know, it was traditionally understood that the GOP was sort of the party of, you know, representing the interests of old people. And they were sort of like... Including the you know President Trump himself, who was the oldest. Yeah, but there's so much the culture time. war. I mean, like the culture war because there's no real politics anymore. Everything is culture war, and it became a culture war issue very quickly. And that's more important, clearly, with right. people's identity and how they view politics. You know, what have you? Culture war is more important. It's the only way people feel like they can express political, really anything. Okay, I that makes sense. And yet, you know, this was a, a literal life or death threat to a certain group of people who are traditionally understood to have more power because yeah, they, they vote more often war, and they have you know? accumulated wealth and so forth, but their interests were pushed aside mostly uh, for the interests of larger groups. Not, of people. not if their interest is to fight a culture war. Well, I mean, there are people who would rather fight a culture war and die of a virus than not die of a virus, I guess. And that's, I don't know the uh american berserk or something um let's see do you worry that there's a you know the blob or whatever you want to call it like sort of wants if we could say they have a coherent desire like some sort of conflict with china so because this is like something they understand i think they want to have the appearance of a conflict with china without a military or economic war basically, because you need to justify this brutal military machine to say nothing of justifying their own jobs within the structure. But I don't think most people want to have like a real war. Okay, so, so a like economic a cold military war. war. But not even a Cold War, because during the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union didn't trade with each other. You can't have that right now. Right. So that is novel in the situation, yeah. or is that it makes the, it the economies totally are different. so intertwined yeah. and... It makes they it make all of our crap and we pay them to buy that crap. And so <laughs> it would seemingly be in both of our interests not to start a war with each other because then we would stop buying crap from them and they would you know, not get money for their <laughs> well, I think people. it's more than that. It's both regimes legitimacy depend on that relationship. America to consume and China you need to have that export market to support this emergent middle class. So it's more than just like that. It's like their entire – the government's reason for being is dependent upon continuing this. Right. And and yeah, if the Chinese economy slows down or reverses or something, then maybe President Xi doesn't become president for life. Right. That's I mean that's a concern. That's the concern. Let's see. You mentioned in the piece the historicist approach of restrainers. What, yeah. what is – can you define that in – how is that different yeah, just from looking at what has actually happened as opposed to what in theory has happened, relying, looking at what states actually do, then relying on 
theories of human nature or international relations, or like saying states naturally expand or human beings naturally do X, actually taking a more historical, empirical, and I think sophisticated view of the uh, complexity of international relations and state action. Like Mersheimer, right? Mersheimer says China is going to expand because that's what states do. I don't think so. I disagree with that's a, that's a that's an ontological claim about what states capital I excuse me capital A are in the world uh, that I doesn't that don't think hold I don't think that holds. Right. Okay. So you know, political science has science in the word or in the phrase, but this is not physics, and humans act in much more unpredictable ways than you know atoms and so forth. Yep. Does the historicist make predictions? less often than the theorists because the theorist has like a model or something and the historicist well, IR IR theorists usually don't make predictions because I mean they're not unsophisticated. I think they appreciate the limits of their actions. I mean I I, I mean everyone kind of talks in, in predictions because you have to have a theory of the future in order to make sense of the present. But yeah, I, I mean it's ultimately I would say reducible to judgment and wisdom as opposed to any sort of model or prediction or equation. Okay. So, I mean, in political scientists, more arrogant moments, people did claim like they should predict things, but I think that's pretty much, that's not the, the world we live in today. It might've been the world we lived in in the nineties, um, but it's really not what people think today. Okay. How do you think American culture will change as America declines relative to other powers? I mean, this is a tough issue because unlike other times in history, you don't actually need that many people to run a globe-spanning empire. If you think about the British or the Romans, you actually need people to go and do things. So you don't really need that anymore. So you could actually have like American decline with this globe-spanning, extraordinarily powerful empire, which is why the American century being over doesn't necessarily – people, I think, misinterpret it as me saying America is no longer hegemon. It's not true. Uh, you could have the hegemony without the ideological project behind it. We haven't had a draft in 50 years. I mean, you just don't need that many people to run this thing. Right. But how do you see, you know, like America, uh, the self-conception of the American people? Probably continuing because we get the best of both worlds. We get to pretend we're valorous warriors without actually doing anything. We get to have football <laughs> flyovers and mm -hmm. watch Zero Dark 30 without actually having any risk. It's kind of nice. You get to have that sort of, uh, what is it, jouissance of, of empire without the, uh, without the risk. Okay, the thrill up the leg. Uh, yeah. Um, are you familiar with Ross Douthat's like decadent culture thesis? Yeah, he's wrong. Decadence is a ridiculous category. What oh, does that uh, mean? Who's decadence? <laughs> okay, well, you you think that it doesn't make sense to talk about decadence at all, or you think he's yeah? Well, I mean, what he's what, what's he talking about? Sex and drugs, right? That's what he. No, I think it's it's more sort of Catholic. like the the culture is stagnant in general, and he uses According examples. Boom, the culture is not stagnant. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's well, he, he goes from popular culture where every movie is a reboot or intellectual property that was invented, you know, decades ago. True. I mean, to sort mass, of like mass popular culture, sure. But I mean, there's plenty of interesting alternative cultures going. I mean, look at podcasting. It's an entirely new cultural form. Entirely new. It's not stagnant. That's true. But, it, you know, it's not new in the way that the Internet was new. It's basically radio, except anyone can do it. The radio is basically just telling stories. I mean, this is just scaling up, you know? The radio is just theater and telling stories. I mean, people are telling stories in new mediums in new interesting ways. I don't think it's a, I don't think decadence is a real category. It's part of this, like, conservative, cyclical 
thing that I think is like pretty reactionary. Well, explain that a little bit more. Like Oswald Spangler, the decline of the West. It, it's basically having an organicist view of history where history runs in cycles, like rise, fall, death, effloresce, rise, what would it be? Rise, efflorescence, decline, death. You know, it's, it, 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 just as like history doesn't always bend towards progress, it's not always cyclical either. It's part of that way philosophy of history ultimately that I just don't think is empirically shown in, okay. in anything. Like civilizations don't have life cycles. That's not how it works. That's how we we have you ever read like um Hayden White's meta history? Like we no. we as human beings apply narratives to these things. Uh huh. But the narrative is not the reality. It's just a way for us to make sense of it. And that's what decades. Okay, is. that and we all do that to that some. That makes degree. sense to me. Um, there does seem to be a stagnancy in American culture in that, you know, Donald Trump, someone who first became famous in the early nineteen eighties. And it's been in our conscious for a long time, became president. Every like so many of the people who run the country are extremely old. It's like the baby boomer rock musicians are still politics, are still huge stars. Like, did you see that documentary about the Beatles? You know, like that was like the best thing. And and that was from 1969 or something like it, you know. Yeah, but there are novel cultural forms. I mean, like there's tons of stuff on TikTok and new music by young people and Zoomers and all that stuff. It's just not true. There's just like a lot of cultural stuff. And like, yeah, the boomers have an ex, uh, exert a significant amount on culture for like, that's how the American power structure is organized. But, you know, it, it doesn't mean that there's not other things happening. There's always other things happening. Well, yeah, the lo- I mean, the longevity of the boomers is definitely part of this and they are going to shuffle off at some point especially faster and faster over the next couple years and yeah it just seems like in some ways we're still living in that culture there's been technological changes of course and they just have the most money and are top of the power but like is rolling stone a vital magazine no no one thinks that but it's still you know know, like it still exists and like we both know what it is you know, sure, like we grew up in it, but I, I would say like a lot of that boomer art doesn't have a special vitality. I mean, even the MCU stuff, people are kind of getting tired of that. You know, in a hundred years, it's not it's not going to be MCU. You know, things we, are, we things can are hope. change. We can hope. Although, you know, these, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty confident on that one. The corporations, <laughs> when Mitt Romney said corporations are people like the corporation lives forever, like Disney is sure. immortal. I, IP is a thing. I mean, like, uh, but the IP is always and, and all the people Marvel stuff about the gods. All the Marvel stuff was invented in the early 1960s. So it's not like it's new in that the computer graphics are better or whatever. But like Spider-Man is like 80 years old or something. And people still love Spider-Man. I I don't know. It's And people love telling stories about Zeus. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> there are particular cultural things that hit for whatever reason. They keep on going. But that doesn't mean culture is stagnant. I don't think. Culture is okay. never stagnant. It's just not. It's just not. It's not how things work. People saying culture is stagnant come from a particular view, usually older, usually conservative. Okay. Um, I'll have to think about this more. I mean, there are things are new. You know, Zoomers are doing dances on TikTok that I am not privy to or understand. But is this fundamentally new? I'm not sure. Um, Okay. Well, I mean, Ecclesiastes was saying nothing was fundamentally new quite a while ago. Yes, nothing new under the sun. And I've had Kirby Ferguson, the documentarian on who – his signature work is called everything is a remix. You know, there's nothing truly new. Every, everything grows out of something pre-existing. but you know, since there are degrees, sure. And I would say like at the, at the highest level of mass culture, there's, there's a lot of repetition. Yes. Um, and yeah, I don't know. And then 
Trump's appeal was a nostalgic appeal to the 1950s television, you know, sitcom. I mean, father knows kind best of. Kind I, of I thing. don't really think that's actually true. I think Trump's appeal was that he was mean and critical of the system. <laughs> I don't. I don't think his appeal was really we're going to return to the 50s. I don't know. Make a make America great again. I mean, it's become people call themselves yeah, like MAGA now. But that's like a vicious thing. I mean, yeah, it, it great again, and 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 sure, there's like this imagined notion, but I don't think Trump's really. No one thought we're going back to the 50s. Trump's appeal was he was mean and he was throwing a, a bomb at the system. I I mean, for some people, his yeah, his outsiderness, his fuck you attitude, was part of the appeal. Um, okay, is there anything else from the essay that we haven't touched on that you think? deserves discussion no i think we we talked a a, a lot about it okay thank so having me on well thanks for coming on and i think the last time you were on you had not yet debuted your podcast so can oh, you yeah talk about what uh, that everyone, is and plug it sure everyone uh subscribe to american prestige it's on substack it's a um foreign affairs show we usually give one free interview a week and we do a news update every friday and then we have another bonus um and then we give a bonus and the bonuses are usually these long series we did a long series on vietnam i think like eight episodes we have i think it's going to be ultimately a 10 episode series on afghanistan uh we do more fun ones like this week we had one on eurovision so uh, everyone <laughs> check that out and it's is there a log line to the to the podcast what it's about the United States and the friends it's made along the way. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe American history really is like the, it was inside of us all along. Um, yes. Okay. In the, in the smile of every baby and the blooming of every flower. <laughs> and you are on Twitter. And how can people follow you on Twitter if they want to do that? Uh, D Bessner. Okay. Right. And I am A-R-Y-H-C-W. You know, people can rate and review and do other things like that if they so desire. Um, okay, thank you, Daniel, for a lively discussion, and thank you to all of our listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks, Aria.